Welcome to another edition of PEM Currents, the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast. This is Brad Soboleski at PEM Tweets on Twitter and author of PEM Blog, a Pediatric Emergency Medicine Educational Resource. Now today we're going to talk about a relatively rare problem in the pediatric ED, but one that especially in children with chronic illnesses such as cystic fibrosis or liver disease can lead to critical illness. It's upper GI bleeds. And the main objectives of today's talk are going to talk about the etiology and how to clinically recognize an upper GI bleed as well as the management of upper GI bleeding specifically in patients with hemorrhagic shock in the trauma bay or resuscitation area. Now, many of you may have seen a child that threw up blood or had a nosebleed, but the majority of gastrointestinal bleeds in children are from the lower GI tract. In fact, only 20% of the GI bleeds are upper. Unsurprisingly, most patients with hematemesis are not critically ill, though in patients that are, the most common cause are bleeding varices. In neonates, the causes include swallowed maternal blood, which is why it's always important to ask breastfeeding mothers about cracking or bleeding at the nipples, vitamin K deficient bleeding, formerly hemorrhagic disease of the newborn, stress gastritis in cases of shock or critical illness, neck, vascular anomalies in the intestines, coagulopathy, or milk protein intolerance, though certainly lower GI bleeding is more common with the latter condition. In infants and toddlers, you'll begin to see Mallory Weiss tears from forceful emesis, ulcers and gastritis from frequent NSAID use, uh, GERD causing esophagitis, which is the number one cause in this age range, variceal bleeding, uh, caustic ingestion or foreign body ingestion, uh, hemangiomas or vascular malformations, or even AV fistulas. In older children, you'll see Mallory Weiss tears, peptic ulcers and gastritis, and pill esophagitis along with varices. And again, varices being the number one cause of severe upper GI bleeding in children. Most of these varices are related to cases of portal hypertension, which can occur in cases of cirrhosis, occlusion of the portal veins in patients with history of omphalitis or sepsis, or even in kids with congenital heart disease and congestive heart failure, veno-occlusive disease, or Bud Chiari. In adults, the most common cause of upper GI bleeding is peptic ulcers, which fortunately is more rare in children. If it's not the GI tract, but masquerading as such, epistaxis is far and away the number one cause, so you got to look in the nostrils. Pulmonary hemorrhage, hemorrhagic pharyngitis, direct injury to the palate or throat, and post-TNA bleeding make up the rest. And certainly, things that look like blood may not actually be blood. So ask in patients with emesis whether or not they've had red food like drinks, candy, or beets, though I don't know how many kids are actually eating beets. And you can actually do a guaiac test on that vomit. Now, if you see a patient with upper GI bleeding and hematemesis and they're ill-appearing, you got to recognize the shock state. And of course, that begins with the ABCs. Get access times two with large bore IVs. Get a hemoglobin early and anticipate the need that this patient may require a blood transfusion. Take a focus history. You're going to want to know about NSAID use, family history of helicobacter pylori infections, relevant comorbidities, including psychiatric problems for the potential for caustic or foreign body ingestion. Is the patient in pain? Do they have fever, diarrhea, and have they had recent labs or previous hemoglobin? 
Certainly, if the patient is in shock, you're going to want to anticipate the needs for blood products. It's important to understand the difference between a type and screen and a type and cross. A type and screen is going to get you the ABO and RH blood type as well as an antibody screen. And then they're going to take various samples of blood and give you one that matches up. A type and cross, this is for when the potential for blood transfusion need is high and the patient has likely been exposed to blood in the past. It does take longer, up to 35 or 40 minutes, but what the lab will do is get a sample of the patient's blood and then compare that against the specific donor sample. A type and cross is like getting matched up for online dating with a specific date. Type and screen is kind of like speed dating, if you catch my drift. Once you give blood products, Recognize that you're also going to have to account for the volume, knowing that one unit of blood is anywhere between 280 and 320 mLs. Blood is good for four hours once the bag is spiked, and you definitely want to consider Tylenol or Benadryl as pre-medication. In general, in children with upper GI bleeds, anybody with shock is a candidate for blood, and certainly anybody with an acute drop in their hemoglobin, especially to a value below 7. Uh, consider FFP in patients with an INR greater than 1.5, and platelet transfusions in patients with a count less than 50. Medical management of patients with upper GI bleeds is better understood in adults, but there are certainly some pharmacologic options that can be beneficial. The most important one to get started early is a proton pump inhibitor IV. In adults, the dose is 80 milligrams IV of loading dose and then infusions of 8 milligrams an hour for 72 hours. Again, in adults, we know more than children, but it does reduce high-risk stigmata and need for endoscopic therapy if given pre-endoscopy. The odds ratio for that is 0.67. And it also reduces the risk of re-bleeding, surgery, and even death in very high-risk patients if given after endoscopy, with a relative risk of 0 0.4, 0.43, and 0.41, respectively. H2 blockers are less effective because you can't maintain a high intragastic pH greater than 6, and there's certainly no evidence for the effect in acute bleeding. Octreotide is a medicine that's often used in ICU settings for GI bleeds. It's a somatostatin analog that reduces portal venous inflow and intravariceal pressure. It should be considered if the patient is unstable due to volume loss and if there's going to be some delay in getting them to the ICU or OR. It does reduce the risk of re-bleeding in adult patients with variceal hemorrhage, but it can be challenging to get efficiently and quickly in the emergency department setting. The initial bolus is generally 1 microgram per kilogram with a max of 100 micrograms, followed by a continuous IV infusion at a rate of 1 microgram per kilo per hour. Other therapies that have been used more so in adults than children include vasopressin or turlipressin, which is used in a similar fashion to octreotide, uh, beta blockers, which can reduce the risk of recurrent variceal bleed. Uh, generally, the dose is titrated to a decrease in 25% of the resting heart rate. Uh, prokinetics may improve visualization if given prior to endoscopy. These include erythromycin and metoclopramide. Transemic acid is an antifibrinolytic. And antibiotics, interestingly, these can be beneficial because in adults with cirrhosis, 20% have some sort of infection upon presentation with an upper GI bleed. 50% will develop one while hospitalized. So you should certainly ask your consultant, mainly your gastroenterologist, about the need for empiric antibiotics in the patient with an upper GI bleed. NG tubes should definitely be inserted in any patient with airway compromise, ongoing bleeding, and if you need a large bore tube for suctioning and decompression. Now, per Fleischer, the emergency medicine textbook for pediatrics, 
quote-unquote, all patients with significant bleeding episodes should have a nasogastric tube placed for diagnostic saline lavage. Now, in practice, if you already know that the patient has an upper GI bleed, you don't necessarily have to confirm it with lavage. Now, the technique is as follows. So if the lavage turns fresh blood or coffee grounds, you have an upper GI or a nasopharyngeal bleed. Red flecks or coffee grounds suggests a low rate of bleeding. Bright red blood suggests a fast rate of bleeding. The specific technique and volume include 50 milliliters of saline per infants and then 100 to 200 milliliters per older children. So you can perform the lavage, pull out the fluids, and then repeat it in 5 to 10 minutes, afterwards leaving the tube for low wall suction. You generally don't have to go longer than 10 to 15 minutes. An older technique was isolator lavage, but this does not slow bleeding and it may actually induce iatrogenic hypothermia, so don't do it. Well, so what do the GI docs, you know, the actual endoscopists, think about doing a saline lavage to diagnose an upper GI bleeding? Well, they say you don't necessarily need it on every single patient, especially if you already know that they have an upper GI bleed. The result of the gastric lavage will not 100% dissuade them from doing an EGD when the blood has only been present as melanin. Now, that being said, if you're not sure of the diagnosis in a stable child and you want to do lavage, go ahead. But that being said, most of the critically ill patients, the diagnosis will be relatively apparent and they're going to be in your resuscitation area. And then endoscopy. Certainly, this is the diagnostic modality of choice for upper GI bleeding. Greater than 90% of the time, this will help you determine the specific source of the bleeding. And the goal is to get it performed within 24 to 48 hours of severe and acute bleeds. The three main reasons that endoscopy is so valuable include source identification, risk stratification for further bleeding, and to perform therapeutic intervention. Certainly, the technique is lesion-dependent. If you have diffuse mucosal disease, like gastritis, well, that's medical management for the scorched earth of the lining of the stomach. Focal sources, such as ulcers or visible vessels, can have chemical cautery or banding or focal coagulation, and clipping or banding is also an option. This specific technique can be limited to what the endoscopists see, and the actual size of the child because certain instruments won't fit in the esophagus of a smaller child. Now, you may remember from med school the Sengstaken Blakemore, the Minnesota tube. That's only about 80% successful in kids and does have a higher rate of bleeding. Sclerotherapy with chemicals like sodium morylate is 90 to 95% successful and can be repeated every two to four weeks. Variceal banding is comparable to sclerotherapy, but again, it's limited based on smaller esophageal sizes in children. Many times, the endoscopist will inject epinephrine into the lesion first and then perform a more definitive procedure. Patients that fail, you know, multiple transfusions, medications, and endoscopy need surgery. This is fortunately exceedingly rare in the pediatric population and includes things such as tips, shunts, or even transplants. If endoscopy fails to identify the bleeding source, which again, fortunately is rare, then you move on to arteriography and interventional radiology maneuvers. This can detect bleeding at a rate of 0.5 milliliters per minute, which is pretty darn small, and you can do embolization or intra-arterial administration of vasoconstrictors. So again, 
Upper GI bleeds that present with critical illness and shock are fortunately very rare in the pediatric populations, but those that do are likely to be bleeding from varices. And again, these can occur in children with history of portal hypertension or conditions that may lead to it. Think cystic fibrosis, ongoing liver disease or cirrhosis, or congestive heart failure. It is not necessary to do an NG saline lavage to diagnose an upper GI bleeding if it is clinically apparent. Certainly, though, can be valuable if the diagnosis is in question. Administer PPIs early. Though the benefit in the literature is certainly greater in adults, there are limited downsides and it may help stem ongoing bleeding. And again, early endoscopy is safe and effective to identify the source, to estimate risk of re-bleeding, and most importantly, to allow for interventions. So get the patient to a location where a pediatric gastroenterologist or interventionalist can perform endoscopy. Obviously, they need to be stable first, so you need to consider effective access, NG tubes for decompression, and blood products as warranted. Well, that's all for this edition of PEM Currents, the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast. Again, I'm Brad Soboleski, at PEM Tweets on Twitter. If you want to learn more about pediatric emergency medicine, you can check out PEMblog.com. And as always, I'm delighted to hear your feedback. Take care and see you next time. Bye.